publishing disaster led mystery romance author Karen Swan into the schedule that's made her an international bestseller with two books a year, a summer one, and a wintry snowbound Christmas one that regularly make the UK top popular fiction lists. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and in Binge Reading today Karen talks about Midnight in the Snow, her latest Christmas blockbuster set in a ritzy Austrian ski resort as well as her new five book historical fiction series launching in 2022. We've got three ebook copies of Midnight in the Snow to give away to three lucky readers. Make sure your name is there in the draw and be in to win, either by entering on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com, or on our Binge Reading Facebook page. As many of you already know, we've recently introduced Binge Reading on Patreon, where we are offering fun bonus content, exclusive bonus content, in return for a small contribution to the cost of producing the show. And I'm delighted to welcome aboard a new Patreon supporter, Lonica, to the team. It means a huge amount to me, Lonica, to know you enjoy the show enough to contribute the cost of a cup of coffee a month to ensuring that we can continue. Your contributions pay for sound engineering, hosting, transcribing and production costs, while my time in researching and hosting the show is all still for free. If you'd like to join Lonica and other supporters we've got and get exclusive bonus content like Karen's answers to the Getting to Know You five quickfire questions, then become a Binge Reading on Patreon supporter today for as little as a cup of coffee a month. But now here's Karen. Hello there, Karen, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. Thank you for having me today. Look, you've got a lovely program that you're following, a very particular publishing program. You've got 20 books that are international bestsellers, highly successful, but you do two books a year, one in the summer and one at Christmas. Tell us how that evolved. Did you start out with that right from the beginning? No, definitely not. It all came about actually from a disaster. So I had oh. written my third book. It was my, so I, I'd had a two book deal for my first two books. And I came up with an idea for my third book, for my new contract. And I was very nervous about it because it was slightly different from my first two books. But I felt strongly that the first two books I'd been slightly copying other people in terms of what did I think was going to sell well to the market rather than me telling the stories I wanted to tell. And when it came to my new deal, I, I had this story idea that I, it was slightly different to the first two books, but I felt I had to go for it because I just felt I couldn't sustain a career writing books that I didn't really want to write, but that I felt I should. So I took a punt and I presented them with this book idea. And that book became uh, Christmas at Tiffany's. And it was my first bestseller. It did incredibly well, not just in the UK, but uh, across the world. And it was this major success. And it was just so exciting to have 
broken through into the top 10 to have made it on my third book. I couldn't believe it. So then, of course, I had to follow up on my next book. By the time Christmas at Tiffany's came out, I'd already written the other book and I submitted it in the January. And I think Christmas at Tiffany's came out in the November. I submitted in the January and about two days later, my editor came back to me and said, there's a problem. And And of course, it was this was the worst thing I could hear because when you've had a book that's just done incredibly well, all you want to do is do the same. So to hear that the book I've just handed in, there's a problem with it, was pretty galling. And basically, I had, as a result of researching Christmas at Tiffany's, I'd obviously been on the Tiffany's website, finding a way, you know, how was I going to use Tiffany's in this book? And I'd seen their charms on their website. And this had given me an idea for a story that went on to become The Perfect Present, which was the book that followed up. Uh, Christmas at Tiffany's. The problem was I decided to take a slightly dark backstory. So I didn't, you know, fundamentally the plot was fine. Uh, A woman, she's a jeweler, she makes a charm bracelet for this woman. Her husband commissions her to make a charm bracelet for this, his wife. And she has to go around and interview the most important people in this woman's life. Her best friend, her first boyfriend, her sister, all of this. And that was fine. That You could see where the, where the inspiration for that came from, from Tiffany's. But I decided as a backstory, as a twist, to have it that uh, the woman was suffering from amnesia and that she was, in effect, being stalked by her marriage counsellor. She and her husband had been having marriage problems and she was being stalked by her marriage counsellor who'd become obsessed with her. It was just a random back thread that I decided to weave into this very beautiful love story because the reveal was that she had amnesia and actually she was the wife and her husband was trying to reintroduce her to the people in her own life who she no longer remembered. And I just happened to do this backstory that they'd been having marriage problems before her accident and that the marriage council had become obsessed. And it just so happened that when I handed it in January, my editor said to me, have you heard of this? Have you read this book before I go to sleep? And I said, no, no, but I've heard about it. I said, this woman with my amnesia and she has to have been, has to put post-its everywhere. And I said, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. I haven't read it. And it was about to be made into a film with Nicole Kidman. Uh, it was about to be a very high profile film. And they said, basically, it's a woman who has amnesia and she was having an affair, you know, and basically there was a very similar thread Now, of course, mine was a love story, and I just happened to slightly go down a a, a rabbit hole with this dark twist. But they just said, look, we know you haven't copied S.J. Watson, who's written Before I Go to Sleep. But by the time this book comes out next November, the film will be out. Everyone will think you've copied their story. And I was like, oh, my God. And she said, you're going to have to completely rewrite. And, (laughs) oh, my God. And... It was. It couldn't have been a worse time for my family. My husband had had terrible trouble at work. He he, he had just been made redundant. My dog had just had puppies. I <laughs> everything was going wrong, and I suddenly they said, "Well, the maximum we can give you is six weeks to rewrite the book. If we're going to get it on the shelves, that's when the retailers will will need to send it into them for them to you know choose." It. And of course, they really want to follow up on the success of Christmas at Tiffany's. So, 
oh my God. So I had six weeks. The book was 120,000 words long. I basically had to scrap everything bar 30,000 words. So I, and I had to repurpose everything. The boyfriend who, who was the bad guy in the first draft or, you know, or rather he was the marriage counselor. He then became the boyfriend in the new book and he was a good guy. You know, I had to, and of course, at this point, when you finished a book, the characters have settled in your mind. You know who they are. That's the journey you go on. And I had to completely reimagine them all. And I had to lose the amnesia and, and, and all of this. So it, it was the worst thing that could have happened. I, I cried for about three days solidly because, <laughs> you know, the pressure now was immense because at least when I'd been writing the book originally, I sort of didn't have the stage fright because Christmas at Tiffany's hadn't quite come out. So I was able yes. to write quite yeah. freely. Yeah. But then when yeah. you're suddenly hearing that this book has done incredibly well across the world and you think, and now you've got, now you've messed up the next one and you've got to rewrite it. There's an element of rabbit in headlights. Anyway, long story short, I thought, right, obviously I have got to get my book on the shelves next Christmas. I have just got to stop crying. I have just got to deal with this. What do I know? What can I use? You know, fundamentally, my main character can remain the same girl minus the amnesia. So I've just got to sort of come up with a different story. But I know the character, the main character. And, and that's really half of the battle of writing any book, getting to know the characters along the way. So I, I had a cast of characters that largely I could take with me. I just had to now drop them into an entirely different setting and story. <laughs> so it was incredibly hard, but I set myself a really strict deadline of I had to write. I, I sort of looked at the deadline they'd given me and I worked backwards and I worked, I worked out I could do it if I wrote 3,000 words a day, so 15,000 words a week, which is quite a lot. But I just thought, if I do that, then I will make the deadline and my book will be on the shelves next next year, next Christmas. And so I did it. I sat down and it was a way of breaking past the panic and, and the chaos and the terror and just saying, right, all I've got to do is the next 3,000 words. All I've got to do is the next 3,000 words rather than calamity. Oh my God, I have to write an entirely new book in six weeks. And actually what it made me realize was there was so much faffing around going on in my writing process before. You know, I'd wander around, I'd cuddle the dogs, I'd make a cup of tea, I'd go for a walk, I'd sit down, write a bit, get on the phone to a friend, you know, thinking that the book would somehow just come. It doesn't. The book comes when you stare at the screen and you force yourself to focus and to put your head in that world. And there's yes. sort of no shortcuts. And, and it really made me focus. And I actually ended up handing the book in a bit early. I was about a week ahead of my deadline in the end because momentum took over. And I handed wow. it in. And honestly, it was a much better book than the original one. I, it's actually one of my favorite books now. And I, I, they said to me afterwards, well, <laughs> you've actually done really quite well there. Would you like to do two books a year going forward? And I thought, yeah, actually, because it's, yes, it's double the stress, but it's also double the fun. 
you know, being a writer yeah. is yeah. spending 99% of the time on your own in a in a room on your own with just the dogs for company. Yes. But you get to publication time and, you know, you get to do things like this. You get to talk to people. You get to do book tours. It's exciting seeing how the book will do. So why wouldn't you want to do that twice a year? So yeah. it also, you know, it was sort of victory snatched from the, the jaws of d- defeat and disaster. <laughs> oh, look, that sounds wonderful. Now, so, and that sounds, the book that you had to toss out, though, both, all of your books, whether they're summer or Christmas, they have evocative locations, but they have complicated love stories and often a, a twisting mystery underneath them that is a little bit dark, isn't it, usually? Yes. So that's obviously something that appeals to you, this slightly complicated and involved kind of plotting. They're part romance and part mystery, aren't they? Yes, that, that's how I think of them. It's funny when people describe me as a, a romance novelist because for me the romance is always obviously it's sort of there it's we yes. have the story within the context of a romance but actually because I write two books a year there's only so many times I can fall in love you know I mean <laughs> I, so for me the interest and and what you know the I suppose the intellectual stimulation for me is always the plot the story and yes. I and I'm always fairly keen that my main character sort of saves herself in whatever situation she's in she's not a damsel in distress she's not waiting for love to rescue her you know we we love our leading man whoever he is in any book you know but the, the focus for me is always my main, my leading lady, getting, resolving her own issues and finding love along the way incidentally. Yes. And I think that for me keeps it really interesting because otherwise I think you'd fall into tropes of boy meets girl. And when you're writing as much as I am, and I do write quite long books. My, my books are sort of quite, quite big. So you know, I, I sort of need to keep the interest level up. There has to be more than just, you know, their eyes met across a crowded room. <laughs> you have some very interesting backstories going on, which is one of the things I enjoy. Like the, the Christmas one this year, Midnight in the Snow, it's set in an Austrian, upmarket Austrian a ski resort. Well, I like that because probably I will never get to see one of those resorts. So you get that escapist aspect. But also it's all about the internationally competitive snowboarder scene. And there's a tremendous amount, and, and the surfing scene as well, because one of the characters starts out as an international competing surfer and has to switch to snowboarding because of various things that happen. How did you get the research for all of that stuff? That There's a lot of interesting back back knowledge in there yeah so the idea for the story came from it was sort of accidental I was cooking and quite often when I'm cooking I like to have uh, a documentary running in the background that I don't have to listen to too closely so I put on the Lance Armstrong uh, and it was quite a long documentary it was about three parts I think and I kept forgetting to cook because I was so engrossed in this man's story. My, my husband's always been into the Tour de France and always kept very close tabs on the story, but I never really did. I, To me, he was just the guy who won the Tour de France loads of times in spite of having had cancer, then got caught out as a, a, as a, a doping cheat. 
Then to actually listen to him talking about this, what really piqued my interest was that, God, the anger coming off this man, the hostility, he's so furious because really what's happened is, yes, he was a cheat, but actually so was everyone else. He was just the poster guy and he he took, in a way, the fall for it. But, you know, he was the poster boy for, you know, alpine cycling. So it was amazing, the anger that came off him. And I was watching him and seeing this real unlikability. He was really unapologetically ambitious to the point of unlikability. He was so driven and in a way unrepentant. And I thought, my God, here you are. You've got three hours of airtime in which surely you're you're trying to make us like you. And I completely loathe you. You're terrible. You're an awful person, you know. And I was gripped by it because I thought, God, is this, is this the personality that you need to become a winner at this level? Is this what it takes to become an elite champion? Then a couple of weeks later, um, out comes the Oscar Pistorius story. Now, obviously, that's a very different ending. But again, when he was talking about this athlete who's overcome terrible adversity, these physical challenges, in his case, in Lance Armstrong's case, it was cancer. In his case, it was obviously a disability, physical handicap. He, again, there were real similarities between them. And I thought, my God, it's so interesting having these anti-heroes, you know, and, and they're yeah. so unlikable, but also I have tremendous sympathy for them. And I'm so interested in this conflict of feelings that I have about them. So it really got me thinking, and I thought that would make a really interesting character. Someone we start out hating, someone who is unapologetically ferocious in his ambition, and he will do whatever it takes to get to the top. So that was sort of the interest I came into the, the book with. Then, of course, because it was a Christmas book, I I mean, I'm so sorry for Australia, because obviously for you, Christmas is not snowy, but for <laughs> 90% of my market, it is. And they want the snow and I, I think the year before, yes, I'd just done Amsterdam. So I wanted to get out of the city again. And I wanted a, a sort of natural landscape. So I needed a winter sport. And I, I thought, what, what can I, what sports can I have that are in the snow? And I didn't want to get involved with anything like bobsleigh racing or because I, I wouldn't know enough about that. But I am a skier. I don't snowboard, but I, I began thinking about that. And then I suddenly thought, how about surfing to snowboarding and I thought is that a thing because when you think about it it must be I mean there's a lot of overlap so I started reading as much as I could online I started following snowboarders and surfers on Instagram and then going through their old their feeds looking at old interviews doing as much reading as I possibly could I watched films I watched documentaries and actually it really is a thing that there's a big crossover between snowboarding, skateboarding, and surfing. And actually, mm. it's easiest to go from surfing onto snowboarding because with surfing, you're dealing with a, a moving surface. You've got a pop-up on the board on a moving surface, and then you've got to deal with the wave. You've got to time the waves. There's a lot of changing conditions. On the half pipe, you're strapped on the board. It's static. You go down, I'm not saying it's not difficult because, of course, it's incredibly technical and no chance I can ever do it. But, you know, 
as an athlete coming from one to the other, that's the way to do it. So I, I just did as much research as I possibly could and just had to get really quite technical about it. There's still loads I don't understand. I mean, snowboarding terminology is very obscure. I'm not sure that half the snowboarders know what, what the terms mean. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I just had to sort of give myself a glossary to work with that I would then refer to. But I just took the view that really we don't need to understand what a an ollie is or a, a, a switchback 360 is. You know, when we're no. watching the Winter Olympics, you know, it's all the excitement. It's fine. They tell us these things. We just watch and we under, we enjoy yes. the spectacle. So I yeah, sort of that's took right. that view as well. We're taking a short break. We'll be right back. San Francisco, 1870, and Hawaiian sugar merchant Kaleo's life takes a dangerous turn when he rescues a workmate from a random street attack and becomes embroiled in a deadly family conflict. Sarah's been living a double life, but can she trust him enough to tell him the true story of her past and maybe endanger them both? That's the story behind Ancient Deception, the ninth book in my historical mystery series of Gold and Blood. Yes, Jenny Wheeler is a writer as well as a podcaster. If you like charismatic heroes, twisty plots, there's a good chance you'll enjoy Ancient Deception. It's available at all of the usual digital bookstores, Amazon, Kobo, Apple. So try it today and let me know what you think. Your character, Kit Foley, who we're, we're really talking about, he does, you do make him quite ferocious and unlikable at the beginning, but there is always that suspicion, I guess because we know that he's the main character, that he's going to be at least slightly redeemed somewhere along the way, which is part of the enjoyment of the story, how you manage to do that. And actually taking you up on your point about the Southern Hemisphere and snow, I think it's funny, I've had this conversation with other writers as well, but even though we are in the sun, sunshine at Christmas time, there's something evocative about the idea of a white Christmas that makes those Christmas stories with snow on the cover still very attractive to us in this part of the world, I Good. think. And of course, you guys obviously have beautiful mountain ranges in New Zealand. I mean, yes, so yes. I mean, yeah, it's better for you. Yes, it was quite a challenge to make Kit vulnerable and likable. And honestly, I sort of was halfway through, and I thought, I don't know if I can do it because I think I think I've convinced myself he's so hateful. How on earth do I unwind this? And the particular challenge was revealing his story and creating a conflict for Clover, um, my main character, in yes. terms of having to put her career and her reputation on the line in relation to doing the right thing by him. But also in those final scenes to make sure that he's still fundamentally the man we see at the beginning. He's still, you know, he doesn't become soppy I mean and and I had yeah. to write the final scenes so many times because I had to stay within his voice and it was really difficult to sort of do that and and to 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 give him that ending and, and give the readers that ending but also stay true to him yeah it was tough it was really hard but I loved it <laughs> That does raise one of another question that I was going to ask you, and that was when you're doing these complicated plots, whether you know right at the beginning how it's all going to work. From what you've said, it's an unfolding story for you just as much as the reader. And I suspect that's one reason that they keep 
interesting all the way through because you are interested in them all the way through. Completely. Anytime I've known a lot, I it's awful. I could literally tell the entire book in three chapters. All I want to do is get to that reveal. And it's actually a nightmare. I, it's like the, the imp on my shoulder. It's just jumping up and down and won't be ignored. It's like, oh my God, leave me alone. So actually, <laughs> I do quite like being in the dark and I try not to overly plot because I think that if I'm able to see six just six steps down the road, well, frankly, so can everyone else. I mean, readers are very sophisticated. Readers are exposed to a lot of narrative and, and fiction in their lives. You know, we've all got Netflix and Sky and, you know, uh, books, we, you know, libraries and, and Kindle and audiobooks. And we're exposed to so much now that readers have sort of heard it all, seen it all, heard it all. You know, that they're, they're very good at predicting a twist or whatever. You know, there's the archetype of there's only five stories or whatever. Well, that's largely true. But my feeling is that every story is about the journey, not necessarily the destination. You know, we all know who's going to get together. The question is how they get there. How invested are we in their relationship by the time they get there? Yeah. And so I quite like getting to know my characters in a very organic way. I don't like them to be prescriptive and I like them to be flawed. I don't want them to be, uh, you know, archetypes. I don't want them to be perfect or, you know, I hope not stereotypical. I try to, you know, it, you know, I'm very happy for them to be a bit unlikable because I know that for me as a reader, if I'm invested in a story, I will actually work quite hard to find redeeming qualities in those characters because I don't believe that we're all good or all evil or all wicked, you know. So, you know, we, we all inhabit shades of grey and the interest is in picking out bits of both. Yes. Now, one of the other books of yours that I read that I thought had an extremely um, interesting plot line was The Spanish Promise. It's a dual timeline mystery set in both present day and the years of the Civil War. And it's just simply, Spain's richest man is giving away his fortune to someone that his family has never heard of. Now, it was a wonderful way to kind of introduce it all, and you made that particular possibility seem so real and possible as well. So where did that the genesis of that come from? Oh, that was quite a hard story. I really was struggling to get that book together. I read uh, I read two thick thick textbooks on the Spanish Civil War because I I had done modern history at A level, so I had done Stalinist Russia, I'd done Hitler's Germany and I'd done Mussolini's Italy, but I had never done Civil War Spain in 1936, which of course is the precursor to it all. And I read these two books on the Spanish Civil War and I really wanted to tell a story. I, what, what, what really interested me as I was reading it was sort of Spain was so rigid in its camps, red or white army. And I loved the idea of this family being split down the middle by these divided loyalties. And it was a really, really organic process. I went into that story blind. Sometimes I go in and I really know largely where I'm going. Other times I'm 
it's I'm I, I go mining. I mean, I literally go into the dark and I have to find the diamond in the dark somewhere. And I had to inch my way through with the characters and sort of allow them to reveal themselves. And with um, that, there is a big sort of twist about a third of the way through quite early on, which I didn't see coming. I suddenly went, oh, because I had thought that possibly that reveal would come at the end. But I realized I needed to have it so much sooner. I won't say what it is for anyone who hasn't read it yet. I don't want to spoil it. But I thought, God, no, no, I've got to put that here. And so then it rebalanced my narrative arc. And instead of having maybe a high point 50% of the way through, it was a bit like a big top with the tent poles at 30% and six, do you know what I mean? And at 60, 70%. Yes, 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 and I saw, yes. so I had, and, and I love it when that happens because it then recalibrates the rhythm of the book. And I have, it, you know, it means that there's no formula to the way I'm writing it. And I, so I'm going with it. And I have to say all the way through that book, and this is, I think, my favorite book, all the way through it, I kept thinking, how does she get to know what we will know. Um, and I'm being very careful about how I say this, so I don't want to spoil anything. And then I suddenly realized that it, so the strap line on that book is no one ever knows the whole story. And that became the strap line because I suddenly realized actually the pathos is she never does know the whole story and their lives have been lived based on misunderstandings. And that's where all the pathos lies. And the final scene of the book, which is a continuation of the very first scene of the book, we come back to it. And everything changes in the last two paragraphs. And just this tremendous, tremendous sadness of actually what had to happen for these, oh, it's so hard to say it without saying it, for these two other characters to protect her. That's all I yes. can say, isn't it? I can't say yes. more than that yes. without revealing yeah. it. But yeah. it's, yeah. for me, I sort of had goosebumps when I realised that that's where the power of the book lay in actually the fact that she doesn't know it and she never did. Yes. And yeah. so, yeah. you know, may maybe it gets missed by most readers but for me I love 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 that book yes I thought it was terrific too look we we really are running out of time it's been terrific <laughs> I'm sorry but we'll jump through, <laughs> right. I do jump through and turning to you as a reader Karen now when you started out reading those civil war books did you just do that for your own fun and the story developed or did you already have an idea to write a book about the Spanish Civil War? Because I'm just interested in your reading tastes now. Yeah. We'll move on to that. I did read them with the view to writing a book. So I, I read them to educate myself because it was a gap in my knowledge. And, and frankly, once I started, I was just so fascinated. And I filled a huge book with my notes. And I just sort of effectively had to teach myself about the Spanish Civil War. And then once I understood the issues and, the, and the, the, the dividing lines, then I was able to drop characters and a plot within that because yes. I then had a working knowledge to manipulate. In terms yes. of my taste, 
I have to say that my favourite ever series is the Neapolitan novels by Elena Ferranti, which are based ah. in 1950s Naples. And honestly, I could just bite down on those books and eat them. I mean, I lived and breathed that world so wholly that I'm sort of devastated that I'm that it's ended and <laughs> I'm not there with them and actually I'm living in Sussex in the British countryside with my husband and children and two dogs you know <laughs> uh, so that's I loved that I loved the grittiness of it. I loved the complication of the 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 two women's friendship and actually what she did by showing that you know we always assume that the most important relationship in your life is with your romantic partner whoever that may be and actually, Elena Franti shows that it's this woman's best friendship and it's their friendship and their love and also their rivalry and sometimes their hatred of each other. And it's this really intense, burning relationship in both women's lives. It's more than their romantic partners. It's more than their children. It's all-consuming. And I just loved it for that. And it's so imperfect and flawed and tortured and joyous and painful and I thought my god this is the most real thing I've ever read in my life so if I if I read nothing <laughs> oh, else wonderful. it would be that yeah <laughs> oh, that's gorgeous looking ahead for you personally over the next 12 months what have you got on your desk so to speak what are you working on now well what I'm really excited about and I just just finished it is next summer I've got coming out the first book in a series of five and it's coming out in hardback first of all which is new for me and that's really exciting and it's set in it's a historical series so it's set in 1930 one summer August 1930, and it's based on the evacuation of St Kilda, and St Kilda is the outermost of the Outer Hebrides. It's a tiny island, two and a half miles long, two and a half miles wide, uh, 100 miles off the, the Scottish mainland, and it had been inhabited for 4,000 years by humans, and in the summer of 1930, at the villagers' request, they were evacuated by the British government and they came over to the mainland. There was only 36 islanders remaining at that point for various reasons. And they'd really tipped below critical mass because they had no communications with the outside world. They didn't have a regular postal service. They didn't have a, a radio mast. They, between the months of September and April every year, the island was impassable to all but trawler ships or the navy the seas were too wild so they were completely cut off their harvests had failed and the way they would survive was by scaling the sea cliffs which were the highest in the British Isles and they're vertical they would scale the sea cliffs to catch the seabirds and their eggs and they would live off that but out of 36 islanders there was only a handful who were able-bodied the others were either elderly or they were children and they simply couldn't sustain themselves when their crops were failing and, you know, it, the, the end had come. And my, I, my family is Scottish. My father's Scottish. I was married in Scotland. I was christened in Scotland. My, all my summers were spent in the, in the Highlands. So Scott, I identify very strongly with being Scottish. And my surname is 
McLeod. Actually, it's Swan McLeod, which is from Max Swan McLeod. And that's where the Swan comes from. And it was the McLeods who owned St. Kilda. So, I mean, that wasn't a reason to do it. But again, it was another point of interest. And I spoke to my father about it and said, there was just a tiny article in the, in the Times newspaper saying 90 years since St. Kilda gave up. I'll show you. I've got the... Uh, and it was, can you see that now? It's just the smallest little... Oh, yes. That's yeah. it. And it was just a yes. tiny little black and white photo, at two inches, not even an inch and a half square, of these very dour-looking men in, in with beards and curious clothes looking at the camera against these tiny stone cottages. And, and the, the headline was, 90 years after St Kilda gave up. And I said to my father, what? it was the fact that they said gave up rather than 90 years since St Kilda evacuated. And the idea that they gave up just really, again, piqued my interest. So I did my research. I got over there. It's a four-hour boat journey nowadays to get there. But back then, it was a 12-hour cross and only when the weather was good. So I was fascinated. And so I've basically got... Uh, five books, each book set around one girl on the island. They're all, of course, neighbours, friends, in some cases, relations to each other. And there's a mystery. So it's all, the first book is called The Last Summer. And we start in May of 1930. And the Earl of Dumfries, who eventually went on to buy St Kilda from MacLeod, who was the landlord, he came over to visit with his son. So the first book is centered around a girl called Effie Gillies, Euphemia Gillies, and she falls in love with Lord Shorter, who is the son of the Earl of Dumfries. And he was a very, very keen ornithologist. So she guides them around the aisle for a week. We then cut to three months later, the evacuation scene, and then her life in the, in the weeks following the evacuation, when the body of the factor is found. The factor being the estate manager, if you like, for McLeod. He had gone missing during the evacuation and a, a short while, a, couple, a week or so after the evacuation, his body is found on the island. So that becomes a mystery as to what happened to him and who was involved. And, and it follows the story of the five women who are all interlinked. Wow, that is amazing that you could turn that into a five-book series. <laughs> yeah, well, there's so much information. I mean, it's uh, it's it's really fascinating. I, I did, a again, an absolute ton of research. And I was up in Scotland, actually, about three weeks ago, and I popped into this museum uh, in Fort William in the Highlands where my family live. But I'd done, been doing some research, and I knew that they had so, uh, just some relics of St Kilda. So I just... I, it was stuff I'd seen before, but I wanted to go in and see it anyway. So I went in and they had what they call a St Kilda mailboat, which is what the islanders would sometimes, well, would use because they didn't have a postal service. They would use a sheep's bladder as a boy. They would inflate that. And there were no trees on the island. So wood was incredibly scarce and a rarity. But obviously there would be shipwrecks or driftwood would come along and they would hoard whatever wood they could find. So they would carve little boat, tiny little vessel, I mean, you know, a couple of inches long, and they would hollow it out and they would seal, they would use uh, sort of fulmar oil to make, create a protective seal and they would put their letters inside the hollowed out wood 
They would then seal it with the oil. And then they would, when they had a favorable current and wind direction, they would inflate the sheep bladder and they would toss it into the sea. And 76% of the time, there, the mail boat would land up on the Isle of Lewis, 60 miles away across the North Atlantic. Sometimes they'd end up in the Faroe Islands or Norway, depending on the, the winds and the thing. But anyway, I, I, so I'd seen a St Kilda mail boat before, but they had one and I looked at it and it was in one of the display cabinets right at the back of this tiny, tiny museum. And it was right on the bottom. So I had to kneel on the ground to have a look at it. And there was a little sort of explanation behind it. And right at the very end, the last sentence, as I'm literally lying on the ground with my cheek on the floor, trying to read <laughs> this thing that probably no one but me has ever read. And it just had this sentence that I was like, oh my God, that's book five. It was just this <laughs> one sentence that opened up. And I, because I, I'd, I, I'd plotted all the way through to book four, and I knew the book five would come, but I didn't know the details of it yet. And I, I had some details, but not all of it. And then I literally, in this random, tiny little museum in, in the West Highlands, having to lie on, my, on the floor with my face on the ground, I found <laughs> the, the thread that has opened up the last book in the series. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> And are you doing those as well as keeping up your schedule of, of the two books a year with the others? So I'll continue doing my Christmas books as standalone, but I yes. will, so for the next five years, the St Kilda series will be my summer book. Yes. Yeah. So yes. I'm yeah. very well, excited about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's wonderful. <laughs> Look, we have run out of time. So where can readers find you online and do you enjoy interacting with your readers? Yes, I absolutely love it. And I would implore people to find me at Instagram on at Swanee Writes. I'm really not so, I, I find Twitter quite a hostile place. So I don't tend to post on there, although I do check in and I will retweet and go back to people if they've come to me through there. But I, I don't tend to post on there. Facebook also, I find quite obscure. It's, I don't know whether it's because it's linked to my personal account, but it, get, picking up messages is always in, in, so involved. You know, I have to log in separately each time and then I can't find it. If someone's put a comment on, a, on an old post, I'm not automatically directed to it and I have to go hunting for it. And, you know, so it's, it's yeah, really hard yeah. for me to keep in touch uh, on Facebook. So, but on Insta, I'm on it every day and I make a point of absolutely connecting with people on, on Insta. So that's the place. Oh, that's, that's absolutely lovely. Do you post photographs as well? I do. Yes. I mean, I, I'm pretty terrible. Uh, I, I, my, my poor publicity department, I think I just tear their hair out because, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I sort of don't like to do a hard sell. So I don't do, I don't post lots and lots and lots about the books. Um, I, I, I talk around them. So I'll give people stories about, you know, the research trip I took to that place and I'll show them photos and, you know, but I, I don't like to bore people. <laughs> but I think that's what people like. Just out of interest, people, you can still go as a tourist to the island, can you? Yes, you can. So it's owned now by the National Trust. So it was sold uh, to the Earl of Dumfries. And then 
I think in the 1956, he bequeathed it to the RSPB, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. And the National Trust are there now, and also the Ministry of Defence, which is sort of not great. But it is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, so it's very protected. You can't stay there. Um, It's a four-hour crossing. You get four hours to stay there. And then it's four hours back and it's pretty intense journey. I mean, it's it's a 12 hour day and the seas are big. So it's, oh my God, you know, it's hard, but so worth it. It feels like such a privilege to have been there. It really does. Yeah. It's incredibly special. Once again, if you've got photographs there, very few people are going to be able to do that themselves. So Exactly. What I'm going to do when the book comes out is I'm going to create a highlights reel or just a highlights tab, and I'll put my photos there so that people can, you know, come in, have, have a good look around and, and see what I saw, and hopefully get a real sense of the place, because it's quite extraordinary. It, it's it's like a bowl, and it's just this beautiful green bowl, but it's absolutely vertical on the outside cliffs, and it just shelves down to this tiny little beach, and you've just got the, these beautiful, historic, very low stone cottages that sort of fan around the bay. And then there are plots running down to the beach. And they, what's really special about St Kilda is they have these stone structures called cleats. They're like beehives, they're stone beehives. And these were their stores and they would put the peats there because obviously there was no firewood. So they would cut peat for their fires so they would store their peats there. They would store bird carcasses there. They would pluck the birds for their feathers. That was part of their rent agreement with McLeod. When they caught the fulmars, the birds store an oil in their stomachs. And in the days before electricity, they would use the fulmar oil for lamps. And so this was all part of the rental obligations to McLeod. So they needed places to store their goods. So there's, I think, something like 1,400 cleats across the island. I mean, they're everywhere. Just these, some are bigger than others, just historic stone structures. And it's a child's paradise. It's just idyllic. When the weather's beautiful. When I was there, the weather was gorgeous. But, you know, it's there's no trees, there's no shelter. And you, honestly, the, the winds, you can imagine, 100 miles off the mainland uh, of Britain in the North Atlantic, going up towards the Faroe Islands. The winds there are wild and the islanders in the winter would be deafened by the winds, literally be deafened because they would just howl, scream around this caldera and it was inescapable. So an incredibly severe place to live. Fantastic, Karen. We'll look forward to that book with great anticipation. (laughs) So thank you so much. It's been fantastic to talk. Thank you, Jenny. What fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening today and Happy New Year, everyone. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope 2022 is going to be a great year for you. Drop us a line. Tell us, where did you spend Christmas? Where are you celebrating your new year? Next month in January, we'll have a slight change of pace. Like last year, we'll look over the year and we'll pick out the top episodes of binge reading in 2021 look out for that it's going to be really fun looking at some of the highlights of the year 
That's it for now. See you next year, 2022. And thanks for listening.